0: Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. This time, government plans to boost the use of imperial measurements. Ministers say it will help revive British culture. All this neatly timed, of course, to coincide with the flags and bunting associated with the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. We may have to wait a little longer to see children going up chimneys, but who knows. To discuss this, I'm joined by James Vincent. James is the author of Beyond Measure, a history of weights and measures, published this week by Faber and Otto English, whose real name is Andrew Scott, the author of Ten Great Lies and How They Shaped the World. Before that, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio... And the Byline Times podcast are supported by subscriptions to the Byline Times. which is our brilliant monthly newspaper. Yeah, a good old-fashioned newspaper edited by our colleague, Hadeep Matharu. It's got some exclusive content in it, and it also prints the best of the contributions to our website, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe to the Byline Times. So go over to BylineTimes.com. That's BylineTimes.com. So very interesting in uh, development we've got ministers talking about reviving imperial measurements as I say we've got James Vincent with us and James before we talk into this about the specifics of this government announcement you've put together a fabulous book and I know this because I've read the thread which you've distilled from it on Twitter about the history of weights and measures and they have always been associated with power and sovereignty. Tell us more. Thank
1: you so much for having me on today. Yeah, the the thread I wrote was sort of focusing specifically on anti-metric sentiment, but the book itself um, really looks at the long history of it. So I go all the way back to, you know, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Sumerians and talk about how the discipline of measurement became so fundamental to civilization, essentially. So although it seems like a, a settled Topic now, and I think that's one of the reasons this current debate over imperial measures seems so ridiculous. For millennia, it's been a really, really important thing for states, for leaders to do, which is to standardize units of measurement. Um, You know, if you think about what units of measurement are useful for today they're essentially a tool of communication right they're how we speak to people about the physical world around us and that means that they're incredibly important for architecture for building cities for roads for temples and they're incredibly important for trade specifically you know um if you look back at the bible for example I i was you know, really uh, fascinated by this that there are so many uh, warnings about not cheating your fellow man, your fellow neighbor with false weights and measures in the Bible. And this it sort of speaks to how important a social issue this was for people. So, over the, over the centuries, over the millennia, indeed, um, all sorts of leaders have made standardizing units of measurement a big part of their sort of claim to power. It's something that you do in order to take care of your people, but it also becomes something you do to sort of establish control over a territory. So that's sort of the deep history. But as we move forward, you know, through the uh, early modern period onwards, through like, you know, the 1400s, 1500s and the state- becomes increasingly centralized, Um, standardizing units of measure becomes a really important tool for having insight into what your country is doing. You know, if if you have all these different regions using different sorts of measurement, how do you know uh, what your trade is like in your economy? So again, controlling this thing becomes incredibly important for improving a country's prosperity. And this means that it becomes an issue of national sovereignty. Yeah, and presumably, this
0: is where the phrase imperial measurements comes from as well. That across the British Empire, pounds and ounces, feet and inches, miles, rather than kilometres, rather than metres and centimetres, these become the, the standard measures across a vast part of the globe.
1: Yeah. So in the 19th century, um, two systems of measurement, well, I guess three systems, it depends, two or three, become dominant throughout the world. One is the metric system, which was created during the French Revolution and then spread essentially through Europe by Napoleonic conquest. Uh, And the other is the imperial system slash the US customary measure system. Now, those are slightly different and they have you know a few different units are, are are have different definitions so the us pint for example is 20% smaller than the uk pint um and that's because the us adopted the old pre-imperial system what was called the winchester standards um and then when the U- uk moved to imperial in uh, 1824 i think it was um they sort of changed things around but you're right these these systems of measurement they spread with Political power with sovereignty, and one of the reasons the UK stayed uh, outside the metric system was for so long was because it had this huge imperial base within which it could trade, and it, in the US particularly there was a huge manufacturing base. There they had, um, you know, the American system of manufacturing, all these machine tools. They were demarcated in inches and yards, basically. And the U.S. thought that changing this over to metric would mean getting rid of all this uh, capital, essentially, this this investment. So yeah, units of weight and measure and the imperial system and U.S. customary measures, they spread with political and economic power. Yes. And increasingly, metric has
0: been associated with the European Union. But Again, your research, your book, demonstrates the fact that the debate around whether we should swap Imperial for metric has been there for decades, well before the European Union was ever thought of.
1: Yeah, it it sort of begins in the UK in the 1960s when various industries in the UK start voluntarily metricating. Um, And this was, I wouldn't say it's completely separate um, to uh, uh, European pressure shall we say, because obviously Europe had embraced the metric system, again, thanks in part to Napoleon. Um, And there was obviously this, this economic pressure to have systems that harmonize with them. But there's a huge difference between something being imposed on a country by external forces and a country voluntarily choosing what's in their best interest. And that's very much what the UK did. Um, there were all sorts of reports done, and you know, business uh, leaders were consulted, and they basically said, "Yeah, this is what's best for our companies. This is what's best for our country if we start adopting this stuff." And this continued from the 60s onwards. You know, pretty uncontroversially. You know, we we went decimal in coinage. I can't remember the exact year, but you know, that was in in many ways an even bigger change than units of measurement, and yet no one now is going, let's bring that back pounds, shillings, and pence. Although, actually, I say that. I'm sure some people <laughs> do want to bring back pounds, shillings, and pence. <laughs> um, but uh, the thing that happened was, and which I talked a little bit about, about in this thread, was that there was this case in 2000 and 2001. It went on for a while. There were appeals and all sorts of things uh, called the metric martyrs. Now, um, I don't know if listeners are familiar with that, but it was essentially... Um, Uh, uh, market traders who were selling uh, fruit and veg, you know, unlabeled, who were prosecuted for not keeping their equipment up to date um, and for not selling in both metric and imperial. It wasn't that they were forced to sell in metric. It was that to meet sort of, you know, legal standards that had been adopted in supermarkets, they had to offer the option. And it was so standards trading officers could obviously check that their scales were on the level, as we should say. Um, so this case became a media sensation uh, and it was very much picked up by UKIP people and Nigel Farage in particular, who saw it as a perfect wedge issue with voters because instead of having these abstract, airy questions about sovereignty and what the EU does and does not do for the UK, they could say, look, they're taking away your rights. They're taking away your heritage. And it became this really, you know, Um, I saw one political commentator describe it as the starting gun for Brexit.
0: Mm, Yeah, I remember working in local radio at the time and having very rowdy phone-ins and people incredibly passionate about that issue. And as you say, it was something with which people who might not have been interested in abstract issues around sovereignty, they could engage on this because they understood the difference between pounds and ounces and liters
1: and centimeters and and so on yeah I, and i think this is something is something i talk a lot about in my book and that i really wanted to express is that you know measurement is not something that is abstracted from our understanding of everyday life in fact quite the opposite you know it Units of measurement are how we understand the world around us, they're how we understand ourselves. And I always think it's really interesting when you look at the UK and you look at the um, imperial units that are still commonly in use, they are intensely personal. We buy pints in the pub, you know, as this bastion of community. We buy pints of milk still as this sort of staple of sustenance. We measure our height and our weight in stones and ounces and pounds and feet and inches. And we talk about distances, how we travel about the world, often in miles. Um, And so this is the thing that these units are not just, um, it's not just about the precision of them. And it's not just about whether they are rational or scientifically fitted to the task. It's a very it's a very emotive subject for a lot of people. And I'm sure you got this feeling yourself when you got these people calling in and, uh, you know, talking about this.
0: Yeah. Uh, Andrew, let me bring you in here. Uh, Andrew Scott, aka Otto English. My kids have zero attachment to imperial measurements. Uh, I I suspect they may measure their height in feet and inches, but they would get a litre of milk from the... Supermarket, for example, I mean, the, the, the appeal of this is surely only to people, I would suggest, over 60, maybe even to people over 80. Am I wrong? Yeah,
2: I, d- I don't think it's I think you don't, I mean, I you know, uh, I, I'm a child of the 70s and I remember growing up in a sort of smoke of confusion uh, as to what the hell was going on, you know, in school. We we were using both systems, and I, I can't remember. I think the the money had decimalized in sixty eight or sixty nine in preparation for hopefully ascension to the EEC, uh, but it, it, they didn't do it in one foul swoop. They they it dragged on for for at least a decade or possibly two. I mean, I remember all through my childhood, we were putting gallons of petrol in the car, and then it changed to litres. So. It sort of, it was a sort of one foot, it was almost symbolic, actually, of Britain's relationship with the EEC and later the EU. One foot out, one foot in you know, and um, and it confused a whole generation. So I think you would have to be at least a decade of me, 60s, <laughs> 70s to have any sort of real clear memory of this but um you know what people forget is we chose to do that or well, not we the generation alive then chose to do it they chose to join the ec the the government of the time chose to adopt metric measures which are far far more sensible than our um slightly irrational imperial measurements. And as uh, James was pointing out there, um, we weren't forced to give up the things that were personal to us. It, most importantly to to me, the pint. No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you know, that no. we weren't no, told, well, I we think we were, most importantly to uh, to, me really to Yeah, to, to, but we weren't we weren't forced to give these things up. And there's still, you know, that whole thing about the crown on the pint, the crown never left the pint. Nobody ever took it off. Uh, And it was there to the, the weights and measures standardization was put in place to protect consumers. So the metric martyrs were bloody minded people who just, you know, they were bloody minded people, weren't they? They didn't they didn't want to change. They didn't want to adapt change. This is the, the very fact we're having this discussion demonstrates once again that Brexit is a backward-looking nostalgia project. And uh, as I said uh, a few days ago on Twitter, it's basically it's an empty coffin, uh, and they can't fill it with anything. So they can't with all this complete nonsense to uh, distract from everything else that's going on, basically. Yeah,
0: so what I was going to ask you, you've, you've probably partly answered it now, there, what... What do you really think is going on
2: here? Well, the Brexit itself is an empty project. It always was. There is nothing. They, they, Brexit has claimed that it was a future-looking project and it was a forward... Looking movement but it wasn't it was largely a nostalgia thing and they don't have anything to offer they can't say look at all these proper benefits so instead they drag up this nonsense and it's, this is blue passportism territory isn't it uh it's like symbolic of Britain before most of us can remember it, uh, and the Nostalgia Project. And it's stupid and it's distracting from, you know, Partygate itself is a massive distraction. The government should be there to be taking this country forward, to be leading us through the austerity crisis, to to be doing good things for this country. But instead, they're engaged in this sort of it's like a custard pie fight politics they're constantly throwing stuff around but they're not actually making the country a better place so if i was a conservative i would be despairing at the inadequacy of it all it's just nationally and globally embarrassing and one more thing as james was talking there i was reminded that i live just down the road from greenwich Up on uh, on the hill in Greenwich, of course, we've got the Royal Observatory and the Greenwich Meridian cutting straight through it. And on the wall just outside, you've got the imperial measurements. And I'm reminded that, of course, when they put the Meridian line in, uh, France's nose was put out of royally put out of joint, uh, and they, I believe, and I'm sure James will correct me. I think they kept their own meridian line in Paris for at least a decade, or possibly two decades after it had been de- the zero had been declared through Greenwich. So this sort of tit for tatism with Europe um, is also a centuries old thing. Yeah, uh, and James, again, just to be clear. It- You write in your thread that
0: metric Mm. is something that has been enshrined in law in both the United States and in the United Kingdom for many decades. The idea that metric measures are valid, just to drum this point home, predates the
1: European project or predates Britain's involvement in the European project anyway. I mean, legal validity for metric units in the UK predates the European project by a good century. Um, There were laws, I think, in, I think it was 1864 when metric units were first giving equal legal standing in the UK to uh, imperial units. No, sorry, a a little bit later than that, perhaps. But yeah, metric has been accepted legally in the UK and in the US for a long, long time because of course, it was necessary. If you wanted to do trade with other nations who dealt in metric units, then you had to have have a sort of contractual basis for their goods to be accepted. Um, And since the 60s, again, uh, we've actually stopped creating our own measurement standards um, because for a long time, a lot of these sorts of uh, these units, like the meter and like the yard, were based on physical standards that would be forged by the countries, and then they would sort of make copies and send out these uh, standards to you know everyone who needed them to businesses and so forth, but. Since the creation of the metric system, um, there's been so much great scientific work done by the countries involved that their standards have become preeminent. So we call it the metric system. The official name is the System International, um, and that has seven basic units that encompass, you know, not only uh, weight and length, but uh, you know, temperature and um, you know, uh, luminosity, um, but They are the preeminent units of the world. You know, we talk about the US and the UK having these sorts of imperial hangovers, these these little bits of nostalgic uh, uh, language. But really, it's sort of meaningless. It's just a label that we're changing. And on that, you know, on that uh, that approach, we're not even unusual in that. So, for example. Throughout Europe, um, the pound and its various variations, which uh, was ultimately derived from the Roman Empire, is still used in different countries. And it's used as a name for 500 grams worth of weight. And now that's not what a pound was, but they've kept the name because it keeps people happy. So in Italy, you know, you get a Libra as a unit and that's a pound and it's 500 grams. So there's no reason for... um, Countries like the UK to embrace both systems of measurement. It's simply because it's this useful Political football, Uh, you know, and as Andrew pointed out, it's just it's tied up with this nostalgic politics Which you know, I don't want to comment on too much. I'm not a political commentator. I'm here for the I'm here for the measurement history That's my real (laughs) interest. (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> but, well, I, yeah, I agree. It's an empty thing. And I think you, even if you look at the news reports we've got on this, I am sceptical anything is going to change, basically. He, I think what Johnson has said is that there'll be a review and that they'll talk to business leaders and business leaders, you know, I don't know, you know, Tesco and Sainsbury's, they'll go, is it worth the trouble? the sort of slight kudos we get from putting imperial units back into all our shops? Or is that just such a hassle in terms of reconfiguring global supply chains? Yeah, I mean, if you if you're looking, and this is an important
0: point, I think, James, if you're looking to be a global trading nation, you need to be adopting without any prejudice or without any clouded vision you need to be adopting units of measurement that are most common in the markets that you are seeking to export to that is if there is a vision associated with brexit that is the vision of britain becoming a proud trading nation once more exporting its way out of recession and so on to do that you need to adopt the units of measurement surely that that the majority of your customers themselves use and that means getting tools and and getting processes in place in your factories that that meet those requirements not the requirements of britain in the
1: 1950s well, absolutely absolutely you know as i said earlier the reason you know, the imperial system became this sort of rival to the metric system temporarily on the global stage was because at that time, you know, the UK was the world's largest, uh, you know, manufacturing powerhouse until it was eclipsed by the US. And we're obviously not in that position now. So the idea that we would create any sort of alternative system is ludicrous. And yeah, the reason weights and measures exist and the reason the metric system has been so useful is it's about harmonizing, trade. It's about creating levels of communication between different countries. So, yeah, if we want to do the sensible thing, we just need to stick with metric. Um, But (laughs) doing the sensible thing is uh, not always what seems to be the political moment right now.
0: Uh, And Andrew, I mean, this is a kind of an internal contradiction, isn't it, within the idea of of, uh, restoring more metric measurements. It it actually goes against what brexit is theoretically
2: about yeah i mean you'll be shocked to to hear my opinion on this adrian which is that they lied (laughs) (laughs) all the time all the time they told us it was a progressive forward-thinking project they lied and some of those people, like the likes of Dan Hannan, who springs constantly to my mind. I, I was watching Paddington yesterday and was reminded once again of the par- of the unfortunate parallels. Um, they, they said, oh, it's future thinking, it's forward-taking, but it wasn't. It, never, it was never about that. It, it was about its cultish behaviour. It's about trying to reset the clock to the pre-European... Uh, project, and it's about trying to, you know, scrape away the taint on Great Britain that came with our association with Europe for 40, however many, very successful years. So, um, it's, this is all a lot of nonsense. I actually, I'll, I'll say one thing which I really noticed uh, as I was kind of engaging tire, you know, with, with, in a tired way with this conversation again this morning. I noticed that some people you would expect to be all in favour of it were against it. And prominent amongst those was Lance Foreman, the... Um, The fishmonger, uh, you know, who was a Brexit party MEP, who runs his salmon company, uh, h Foreman in the east of London. Um, he, He was quite vocally saying on Twitter that this is a completely nonsense project and it's completely stupid. And of course he thinks that because he's exporting his fish and he realizes what a waste of time it is. You know, I, I wonder what the cost will be, apart from anything else, of, if people do it, of putting the imperial measurements back on the packaging. And that will probably be passed on to the consumer. So it's of no benefit to anyone apart from Jacob Reese moggs you know, material for his wet dreams. I always questioned conservatives who
0: tried to bring about change for no apparent benefit. And in, in a sense, it's the opposite of conservatism. Certainly, if you are conservative with a small C, and I would suggest in some cases with a large C, Part of your philosophical outlook is based on the idea of not meddling with things unless they need changing. Just leave things be unless we must change things. That is a a core principle of conservatism in both senses. So whatever was done 20, 30 years ago, if it now works and people now understand it in this way, it seems to me
2: fundamentally... Und- that, that this is the thing. As we've said before, Adrian, these people aren't really conservatives in the, the in the pragmatic sense of people like Thatcher. These people are, are members of a cult. Uh, and uh, people have joined the cult for different reasons. Boris Johnson has joined the cult for self-promotion, but the likes of Hanan and Rhys-Mogg and uh, Redwood and co, uh, it's a cult of British exceptionalism and nostalgia, and it's of no benefit to this country. Uh, that was the message that, that and, and I'm sick of talking about Brexit as well, but that, is the, that, that, that was the message that should have been got out, and it's becoming very, very clear now as they faff around with their custom pie fight trying to reimpose the old order
0: one final thought for you this is from jackie smith on twitter says it's really time we started countering the distraction bombing coming from downing street and focus instead on the lying corruption and sheer drunken idiocy rife in downing street we've got real problems and for those who think that this is distraction bombing and that we are somehow being taken in by it. I think it's worth noting, and uh, Otto, you and I have spoken previously uh, and to some degree uh, about Partygate, so you, you will find those broadcasts both on Byline Radio and on the Byline Times podcast. It is worth reflecting, though, that there are reports that three Senior civil servants lobbied Sue Gray not to publish the names of those attending lockdown parties, according to reports in the Sunday Times. There's even a suggestion that Sue Gray's final report was watered down and that there is this uh, ongoing question mark of whatever happened at Carrie Simmons' birthday party. Uh, the ABBA party, as it's referred to. So it, p- perhaps we are playing the Downing Street game, uh, uh, you know yielding to their distraction bombing.
2: Yeah, well, we are. But they're actually distracting from the fact, and I'll say it again, that they're not actually doing anything. They're distracting from a distraction. You know, The party gate is a distraction from from the mess the economy is in, the mess of Brexit, the mess of their handling of the pandemic. Um, You know, what this country needs to, to uh, you know, what the world needs now to misquote Hal David is proper politicians doing proper things for the benefit of this nation and not engaging in this circus of stupidity.
0: James, final thought to you. You can't have believed, can you, that you'd publish a book and it would come out on June the 2nd and you'd be right on top of the hottest news story of the day, a book about weights and measures.
1: Honestly, yeah, I, I started writing this book three years ago, and it's the sort of thing where you know you mention to someone that you know, well, you're a part, you're at a party, you go, what do you do? Oh, I'm writing a book at the moment. You go, what's it on? They go, oh it's on measurements, and they face immediately glazes <laughs> over, and you go, oh god, I've lost them already. But yeah, I, I, I've got incredibly lucky because um yeah, this just it is. The fact that this row is animating now, it feels like to me, obviously, the whole country really shows why this stuff matters. And obviously, the, the political side of it is, is its own little sideshow, which um, yourself and Andrew have described brilliantly. Um, but from my point of view, it, <laughs> it reinforces my uh, strong held, strongly held belief that measurements, the measurements matter and we should pay more attention to them as we are now. His name is
0: James Vincent. The book is Beyond Measure and it's available from June the 2nd on Faber Books. Thanks to James. Thanks to. Otto English, a.k.a. Andrew Scott. And thanks to you for listening, whether you're listening live on Byline Radio or whether you're listening on catch-up via the Byline Times podcast. Before we go, just a reminder that you can support our work on Byline Radio and on the Byline Times podcast by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's a monthly newspaper, an old-fashioned newspaper but he's committed to free and fearless journalism. Telling the truth as we see it. The newspaper does have exclusives content as well that you can't get elsewhere. So do check it out. Find out how to subscribe at our website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Thanks to Otto. Thanks to James. I'll see you all again soon. Stay tuned to At Byline Radio on Twitter for more live Twitter spaces. See you soon. Cheers now.